Hello and welcome to Tea with Culture. I'm Wal Hattar, and with me today is Lawrence Abu Hamdan, who is an artist that has been growing and developing and really extending the the artwork from whether it's sound or video or installation into a very interesting place in the world and across the world. So, hello. Hello. So now we're in Beirut, and I've caught you after multiple travels of, of, of your shows. Um, and before we get into all of the work they've been doing now, um, can you give us a little bit of a summary of, or a little bit of description of what your work is for somebody who's not as familiar with it? Yeah, sure. My work is basically um, trying to understand through maybe, um, I would say, by now, perhaps 14 different iterations and different ways and different geographies and different places, trying to understand, it all comes back to understanding what is the kind of like politics of listening. How do we, how can we read the politics of a situation through the uh, the sound that it generates or the communication between two people or be it um, this pollution, sound pollution in Cairo or um, a gunshot firing through a playback in a courtroom in uh, Israel, these kind of things. How do they tell us about the world and about the politics of a given situation that maybe images uh, occlude or, or do not uh, allow us to see? And uh, before, what got you to this level of political understanding of sound? I mean, why even sound in the first place versus other artistic endeavor. It's not, it's not necessarily the most common thing, especially within the Arab world, which we'll get to later, but how did, how did you fall into that? Well, sound isn't more special than other things. It doesn't tell you more than other things do, but it tells you something that is often overlooked about an event, mm -hmm. because often sound is overlooked, and I think it's overlooked not because we don't know sound. I think it's overlooked because we know sound so well. We've internalized it into our, our bodies. We use sound and speech all the time and we adapt to different situations and we change our voices and our accents depending on who we're speaking to. And we do all of that subconsciously. And so I think I'm interested not in the fact that sound is a minor thing. It's actually that it's a major thing that's been suppressed and it's been internalized. So I'm kind of really interested in finding those kind of major moments in the way we kind of socialize and the, the social political relations we have with one another through sound because it gives you a kind of another perspective. But why I, I came to sound and why I'm personally interested in it is because I've always been doing it basically since I was um, a kid doing music, you know. And even the very first musical kind of like projects I had we're always trying to like push back and stretch what a sound could be or what music could be rather than just accepting maybe the kind of conventions of what I was listening. I wasn't trying to copy. I was trying to try, I was trying to kind of like find the anatomy of a sound from very early on and try to kind of like, you know, insert new things. And that's through, you know, basically living um, in the Yorkshire countryside with my brother. Um, having nothing to do, nowhere to go, and just kind of like making kind of wacko music together was better than watching the television at the time. 
maybe now television would be better. <laughs> um, but basically, that was, that's how we started. And then we, we were in very close proximity to um, a kind of like very amazing scene of self-organized musicians in Leeds uh, who really showed me that... Um, you know, um, basically the relation between kind of the organization of music events and um, kind of like one's politics, you know, uh, how to avoid the music industry, how to make sure artists get paid, how to kind of like cobble together a sound system and, and put it up and, and organize a gig ad hoc. Those things were really kind of like inspiring for me to think about uh, the relation between kind of like politics and sound, really. Um, uh, in that case, music. Later, it came to be more about sound and listening, but it really began through through music. And how come you didn't end up more into the music world? Like I know uh, there are a lot of experimental sound that's out there. Even Lebanon, I know, have a, have a have a festival for that called Irtijal, which is basically just experimental sound, experimental music, not going into kind of the, the pop culture aspect of that. Did you venture in there, or did that? at a certain time kind of move you just into a different direction? Well, no, I, I definitely ventured into it at the beginning of my career, but I quickly started to think that music was not the best vessel for the kind of ideas I was dealing with. And I'm dealing with things which are very narrative-based. Um, I'm dealing with things which really have a very concrete subject matter. A lot of my works are what they are, you know. They're not uh, indeterminate objects or sculptures. Often there's a you know there's a story behind them and and one that I want to tell through sound. So it doesn't necessarily music isn't the vessel for that. And at the beginning it was also complicated for art to be the vessel for that. And I think slowly I've both adapted my language and audiences have adapted ways of seeing my work as as they've gone on to it and to know what to expect from certain um, installations and presentations. So, um, so yeah, that's that's it. That's, that's right. But you yourself studied art uh, at school. You didn't necessarily have to do any sound studies, or did you also have to do anything kind of techy stuff on the side? I did. Yeah, I mean, at school, I did music technology. So again, I was really interested in the anatomy of sound from very early on. At that point, you know how you put together. I don't know. Um, a recording, how you record a drum kit, for example. Those are very fundamental questions that start to inform your way of thinking about the world through sound, you know, through space, through texture, through um, what, what rooms give to voices. Rooms give to voices. You're loving the echo here, aren't yeah, you? loving the echo on this. You know, and then to think about how sound, you know, th through the recording of a drum kit, you start to understand how sound is inseparable from the space in which it resounds, from the kind of like uh, the way it looks, you know, and all these things. And, and I, think, um, I think it gives you an idea, you know, of trying to make then a case about... Uh, 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 and, and there you sort of understand why kind of like it leaks into art and images. A lot of the works are silent, they're just image-based, right? But they say so something about listening. So it doesn't need to only be sound to speak about the subjects I want to speak about because I think listening is a kind of, you know, I think sound is a leaky thing that leaks into other subject matters. It leaks into rooms. It's never itself. You never can find the source, you know. It's, it's never separable from the thing. And by virtue of that, I think sound is never separated from 
the politics and the space in which it resounds, and I think that's also what, what I'm interested in. So I studied music technology. I studied then in my bachelor's uh, was a course called Sonic Arts, which no longer exists anymore. So, you know, I was like a 19-year-old guy thinking, what am I going to study? And I saw this thing called Sonic Arts. It looked crazy. And, you know, there I also found a kind of uncomfortable relationship to things like experimental music, electroacoustic music. I didn't feel I fitted that thing. I started going more into the art stuff at, that, at Middlesex at the time. And so the cross between those things was really fruitful for me. Um, and then later I studied uh, with Eyal Weizmann um, in Goldsmiths. And I think that's when I met you towards the end of your master's about yeah. ten, 10 or so years ago. And I have been kind of following your art and, and seeing the development, which is why I'm, I'm kind of very happy that we are having this, uh, this interview, especially after the, the, the big win you've had at uh, Art Dubai, which was the Abraj Prize most recently, as well as your, your shows in Paris and soon, in, in, and soon in, in London and around. <clears throat> Going back to, to the kind of the general practice of art, um, I want to ask a little bit about sound art and the Arab world. Because you're, a, I guess I, I can call you a half Arab, um, you're kind of, you're mixed and you, but you were living your entire life in, in the UK and, mm, yeah. and, and only recently have you been kind of interacting more within the Arab world uh, itself. No, it's not true. No, no. I mean, on the one hand, yes, genetically, if we want to speak genetics, I'm half. Half also somehow culturally, but you know you can never be half something. You know what I mean? Well, <laughs> you, you, I mean, you know what I mean. Like, I think, yeah, I think it's more about living in London than in the Arab yeah, world. Yeah, exactly. So I grew up in Amman first of all, and then in uh, um, England. But then always coming back every school holiday, we either spent in Jordan or in Lebanon. Okay. So a lot of my life. My childhood life was in the in the Arab world, or in Lebanon and Jordan specifically, not even the Arab world. So um, there's something uh, about that that was always kind of inspiring in, on the one hand, because it meant that whenever you're in the UK, and you know it wasn't London, right? It was it was Yorkshire, and there wasn't anyone else, right? <laughs> Who was who'd ever even heard of those places? So it meant that you always kind of like thought and were coming from a different place. Uh, I don't mean I mean that conceptually, not only geographically. So I think it was always something that informed the sort of way of thinking, and always something I wanted to kind of like make sure to insist upon because it was somehow both kind of like given to me and taken from me at the same time. Um, so it has been a kind of like long time. I've been based now in Beirut for the last three years. Um, and uh, it's been really interesting to sort of like take the practice and, and have it look at Europe from here rather than be in Europe maybe looking at here, this region, you know. And that's been a really kind of productive shift. And how has the kind of Arab artistic world, I guess, for the past 10 years as you've been working, kind of been interacting or accepting this, the, the, the less mainstream aspects of art, which, which include sound and, and things like that? I mean, the, the, from my perspective, it has always been, at least in, if we talk about contemporary art, 
it has always been a place which was even more ready to accept the less mainstream art practices than... Um, well, what I'm trying to say is that the mainstream here is, because of certain practitioners like Rabbi Amruwe, Walid Raad, it meant that like a sort of early iteration of what it meant to be a kind of like research-based artist, research-based practitioner, was kind of forged here, in and among other places, you know. Of course, there's other examples of everywhere else in the world, but the model for that, which I believe is most exported in contemporary art schools today across the world, is that of those kind of Akram Zatari and those kind of like people, or at least they're mentioned high in, in the kind of like list of those. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that I think for a long time there has, a, I think the focus of artists here has been the focus of not painters, not sculptors, but really people who have been trying to work with archives and, uh, and trying to kind of like revisit historical and political questions. And then what about the, the layman, the everyday human being who kind of knows a little bit about art but nothing else, might go to a fair, might go to a, to a, mm. to a museum and see one of your pieces? And how, do, you, do you have any interaction or feedback from, from those everyday audiences? Yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing is that um, I kind of, a lot of my works are very easy to understand. They're not heavy theoretically, uh, they're heavy subject-wise, maybe, sometimes. I think they're easy to understand. I think I make them... I want people to understand what I'm trying to say. I'm very clear on that. And I think... I think a lot of people don't really think about audience. I think there's still this sort of sense by which um, a lot of artists are trained, especially in the kind of, like, French schools and those kind of places, that it's still about the expression of the artist. And it's about what they want to say. And this is a kind of like art historical look at what an artist is, right? Because it's like then you go back and you try and think about that historically and within of a certain given thing. But I think, um, for me, the, it's not about the expression of the artist, i.e. me, only. It's about how that relates to the audience. And it was a bit like what I said before. Sound demands a kind of like listener. <laughs> and... It demands a space in which it's played, and it demands a kind of like audience, and and so I think I'm making demands of my audience very specifically and very concretely. Even if I don't want them to understand something, they might know that I don't want them to understand it. Right. What's interesting, at least from from me, when I when I saw it as not as someone who's into the arts, but as a kind of human being going with friends, I remember one of them was in Sharjah at Maraya Art Center, and and, and he had a piece there. And what I think is interesting is what you said earlier is that they are stories. They're not some abstract, deep and meaningful kind of blip and blob that's there and people should kind of think, look deep into themselves to figure out the need of the sound kind of thing. But it's, it's rather a story, it's rather a... Uh, not necessarily a, a research-based thing, but we go into your detective skills of, of figuring something out. And, and in these stories... And I guess why they, they're not necessarily the reason why you're getting more and more popular. You are quite good at what you do, but, but it's the fact that the themes, like you said, aren't necessarily heavy. So it might be about war, but it's not necessarily about war. It's more about displacement. And, and that's kind of, what, at least what I've seen from all the films is what's going around. It's, it's that 
shift or movement or I guess like a better word repeating again the displacement of the story of the sound mm-hmm. of the person that that story and sound is about um, am I seeing it right or am I just making things up yeah I think it's a really good point because I think often what I'm dealing with is you know this idea that once a sound is issued from a person a gun whatever it is it no longer really belongs to that object right so it's ne- never really about the sort of individual, it's about the kind of space in which the sound resounds. So be that the accent test of asylum seekers, right? It's the most easy thing to say is that once they give their accent and they put their accent on a recording, the voice is no longer their own. It gets turned into evidence and is used against them to define where they are from and to make sure that you know, they come from Palestine and not Egypt, for example. The following is a two-minute extract from The Freedom of Speech Itself, 2012. This syllable is the sound that provides the UK border agency with the alleged certainty of Muhammad's Syrian origin. They designate this vowel as a Syrian national and imply that its use in the word for tomato is coterminous with Syria's borders. But locating this Syrian vowel in the speech of a Palestinian surely proves nothing more than the displacement of the Palestinians themselves. In other words, the instability of an accent, its borrowed and hybridized phonetic form, is testament not to someone's origins, but only to an unstable and migratory lifestyle, which is of course common in those fleeing from conflict and seeking asylum. Is it not more likely then that a genuine asylum seeker's accent would be an irregular and itinerant concoction of voices, a sort of biography of a journey, rather than an immediately distinguishable voice that avows its unshakable roots to a single place. The fact that this syllable designates citizenship above a Palestinian identity card that contradicts it forces us to rethink how borders are being made perceptible and how configurations of vowels and consonants are made legally accountable. So, what is the legal status of our voices? What is the connection of our accent to our citizenship? Is there any law that stipulates how our voices should conform with our national borders? And can this phoneme renounce its Syrian citizenship? But, of course, it's also used by the government to impose unnecessary borders and strange sort of... uh, uh, non-existent borders and, and impositions upon the voice, right? On, upon the voice's freedom to speak. So I think exactly that is what, what I'm dealing with often is the sort of structural uh, and the kind of like uh, spatial conditions by which a, uh, a, a voice resounds rather than only about the kind of like person. So through that one thing it sort of reverberates and, and reflects off other things and hits other stories and things connect to each other. Um, in unexpected ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you talk about keeping it in kind of when your, late, your latest project, Walled on Walled, is kind of the opposite of that, is where the sound even escapes the wall and, and, and it goes through. Through and the structure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a very literal yeah. sort of idea of what I'm trying to explain. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. and, and funny enough, and, and I guess it works for me of, of the displacement of that sound because the stories you had in the video were uh, something in, in court or a story about... Uh, uh, 
uh, another drug dealer or the story about the prisons. And it was always about somebody who's there but no longer there and, and trying to create a story out of something that's lost. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's a really good observation. Yeah, and also it creates strange equivalences. Once you let a kind of idea act like a sound, mm. it starts bouncing off strange things. And when it hits a window, it sounds a certain way. And when it hits a wall, it sounds a certain way. And I think if you think that way conceptually and, and compositionally when I create my works, you start to create very strange worlds where all of a sudden, one second you're talking about the South African athlete Oscar Pistorius and then a drug dealer in Oregon and then a prison in Syria. And somehow they make a world together that you can see and you understand the relations, but by which, you know, once the film ends, those are catac- catalyzed to the other, to the ends of the world in which they're separated, you know. So it's really trying to sort of create a kind of space in which, you know, equivalence also matters and, and things bleed into one another. Um, I mean, so far for the audiences that we've been talking to, so in the Blow League you can, you can find some of the clips for some of the films. Talking about the kind of uh, what you mentioned with, with the sound changing and, and reworking and, 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 and re-reflecting to something else. Do you re-look at your work as well and change it and adapt it? Or, or, is, or once work is done, it's, it's no longer restudied? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been, uh, for better or worse, like a period of a lot of production, you know, one after the other. And um, I think what I'm trying to... Um, uh, do now is maybe sort of look back at some of those things and see what I was doing, what I was getting at as it's becoming clearer and sort of reinstalling and reconfiguring some of those same ideas in ways where I think the ideas are more distilled. So that's very much the case with a video I made in 2013 called Language Gulf in the Shouting Valley, which I'm still very attached to, but it it was too much. There was too much there. It was it was Those links were... were we're not holding, we're not holding a story. And I think when I finally came back to it and distilled what it was, I reconfigured it as a, actually as an eight-channel installation. And it becomes just, you know, a way to say exactly what I wanted to say back then, which I wasn't able to say. Um, and that's a piece called This Whole Time There Were No Landmines. The following is about a minute extract from Language Gulf in the Shooting Valley, 2013. Smell, smell. Whoa! Uh, 
So there has been more recently kind of returning and refining. But also I think, I guess at the very beginning, I started the whole work on the politics of listening with gathering together an archive of tracks. That's like things ripped from the news, things ripped from uh, courts and trials, uh, things I heard. Each one of them, I think, is in and itself a kind of work, but they exist as th- uh, currently as kind of like three-minute examples, right? So things that began there were the you know advertisement for the lie detector that ended up producing the work The Whole Truth, or the you know the little clip from Oscar Pistorius, which ended up being the whole big chunk of the work of Wald and Wald. The following is about a minute extract from Wald and Wald, 2018. When I consulted with you, I asked you if you can just make uh, the resemble that noise what you heard. And I know it won't be as loud, but just just to give the court some idea what you. The crying was like. On Valentine's night, 2013 in Pretoria, South Africa, Michelle Berger awoke to the sound of a woman screaming, followed by a volley of four gunshots. She recreated those screams she heard that night in a court of law when the event she witnessed became the subject of a murder trial. It was the trial of the athlete Oscar Pistorius, and it was dedicated to discovering if he had intended to kill Riva Steenkamp through the bathroom wall or if it was an accident. Pistorius testified that he believed he was shooting at an armed intruder behind the wall when he shot his girlfriend. The wall became the last line of his legal defense, and accepting that he could not see through the wall, the attention of the court turned to how permeable the structure was to the sound of her voice. So those, that has always been a way for me to kind of like gather, and it's been often a kind of uh, color palette, you know, that I've used. If I needed texture or sound to add in a certain place, I would actually take it from you know, different trials and different things and, you know, the gavel strikes or whatever, I actually use it as a, um, as a toolbox that can be sometimes purely sonic and, and, and sometimes content-based. So um, that's something I've been going and doing and I actually haven't shown the archive as an archive since 2012. And I'm really thinking about ways in which that can be a more living part of what I do. And so that... So that ongoing as these projects collect and gather and you know certain elements of this archive get refined and drawn out into maybe 20 or 30 minute works there's always this kind of like raw material which you can kind of like access and, and yeah so I'm interested in that and it was interesting. I remember uh, at least visually uh, Earshot which was an installation you had had similar uh, a similar look and feel to el- so some elements in your video rubber coated steel with the kind yeah. of the, the colors yeah. that uh, can, uh, which are, I assume, are the sound vibrations yes. on recording. So rubber-coated steel was in the installation. Okay. So it's part of the same project, that's why. So it's always designed that when you're in earshot, you also see the video. All right. Because it's also kind of like um, borrowing from the sort of scene or the scenography in which rubber-coated steel, the film, is filmed, which is in a... Um, shooting range, right? So there I had the bars, the, the long uh, horizontal bars from which is suspended a series of images 
um, like you would have on the kind of like targets of a shooting range, to tell this story of the killing of uh, Nadim Nawara and uh, Muhammad Abu Dahir in uh, uh, the West Bank, um, who was shot by an Israeli soldier uh, who claimed to be firing rubber bullets, but was actually masking the sound of rubber bullets by firing live ammunition. Uh, sorry, by the rubber bullet adapter and through the firing ammunition through the rubber bullet adapter, uh, he could kind of create this uh, cover for him, an alibi for the firing of live ammunition uh, through which he killed two teenagers on one day and uh, injured another. Of course, that seems petty compared to what recently happened in Azerbaijan. That was a big deal. And, and as we know, there is a stratified way in which the um, Israelis deal with their kind of like apartheid in the sense that how they kill people from Gaza is different to how they kill people from the West Bank, how they kill people from Haifa, Arabs from Haifa, Arabs from the West Bank, Arabs from um, Gaza. So in, in that story, you have, um, you have a very specific way in which that killing is supposed to be covered up um, through kind of supposedly quote-unquote non-lethal forms of violence. So it's really a work about suppression of sound and the sort of makes a case for silence. That's why you don't hear any voice in that piece. It's trying to sh show you all the ways in which silence worked in that case, both as a, the withdrawn voice uh, of resistance to not speak to the Israeli authorities by the Palestinians to the ways in which the gunshot was also kind of like suppressed and, and uh, yeah. And going back to the actual, and going back to the actual installation, you said that rubber-coated steel was within earshot, but then again, rubber-coated steel was also presented separately mm -hmm. in, a, in Rotterdam and you had won an award for it mm -hmm. as a film. Mm -hmm. So how do you then separate or decide to separate these pieces? And, and this is something that Hind actually wanted to, to discuss, is how do you see kind of film versus video piece or when your film is shown in a museum versus in a cinema? Right. Yeah, no, it's a really good question because essentially all of the films are designed and thought about being shown as part of installations or in the museum context because that's my main context. So they have that... Um, they have that in their very kind of like montage, right? All the videos. But for because of film festivals like Rotterdam, which are very kind of like focused on sort of bringing artists into the cinema, I've ended up kind of entering film festivals. And the film that had a lot of success was Robert Coded Steel, actually, in the, uh, in the festival circuit. And that's something quite strange because I don't really know what it was. I didn't know what those festivals were. I would get an email saying you won an award and I couldn't remember f submitting the thing and whatever. Oh, poor you. <laughs> no, it was like, it was quite strange. Um, I'm going to take that back. <laughs> no, but it, it's kind of funny um, because it's not really intended to be there. But of course, the audience for film is much bigger. It w I mean, it's just good to see it circulating in that way, but it's not what I intend it to do. And especially as you know, Wald on Wald, so of course I only intended you to see it once, but I still put it on loop because it forms a loop, right? Yes. I wanted you to understand that. And I think in a cinema, how do you get that across, right? Because there's something very nice about 
designing a film in which you can walk in at any time. There's something kind of creative about that, something interesting rather than the idea that there's a start and there's a finish. So how do you work with those things creatively and how do they then translate to the cinema is an ongoing question that I haven't resolved. But I'm always interested in submitting them to festivals because, you know, you end up part of uh, programs which are extremely kind of like geographically diverse and interesting. So if the films stand up there, then that's great, but that's not the primary place I'm trying to show them because my instrument as an artist is sound, as I've discussed, is image or listening and thinking about the audience, but it's also about how that audience has an embodied experience in space. And, and that, you know, is my main... Uh, uh, medium space, you know. So I think, even if it's just a single channel video, I really want that to be in relation to the body of the audience and all those things. So, yeah. No, that's 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 definitely quite interesting. I mean, personally, I haven't really even seen my works in a cinema. <laughs> I've never really seen the, them screened in a cinema. Yeah, I'm not usually there during the festival, so I don't actually know what they're like in a cinema. Okay, that's 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 bizarre. Especially, yeah. yeah. Especially that um, I've been to a few of your installations, and I know how it's usually kind of there's always dark, there's always cloth, there's always some area coming sound, some area not. And looking at the photos, because I wasn't present in um, uh, in uh, our Dubai, but uh, I've seen the video and I've, and I've seen the location, and it's ba it's barely it's basically a room within a room on a wall but then within the film you also have frames of that wall and then the frames of the inside and then you keep adding frames yeah. to make it even more claustrophobic and adding more walls to it which you definitely wouldn't be able to get in a cinema right. but you would but me having viewed it on the screen right now is is you you'd be able to it's, it's a whole different feel which is why on the positive side your film productions are really well done and your directions really good so as, as a film, filmmakers will take out the story because in the end, your work is story-based, is research-based, is kind of that investigative detective noir type of thing where we don't necessarily have to have an answer in the end, but you still have a question at the end, yeah. a question you never had in the beginning. And like you said, uh, the opportunity of going to these kind of art cinema festivals, art film festivals, is that it would bring audiences who are kind of half-half, and it, it would it'd be a positive way for them to be introduced to artists like yourself, yeah. who they wouldn't necessarily seek specifically at a show or at a gallery or at a museum. And, and the thing specifically with this piece and with the other piece, you they look at things differently and they bring some other kind of discourse, and I think that's always valuable to then make another work, you know, think about how people see it from another space and place. And I think, especially if we're going to be talking about walls, uh, which the whole piece is about, different kind of walls meeting each other, then I guess the screen, you know, there's been a lot of work by people in cinema think about the screen as a kind of ultimate wall thing. So you have this kind of other thing going on, right? So depth and all those questions is something that cinema has tried to kind of make out of the flat surface of the screen. And I think that's, you know, that's an interesting place in which to insert it. It's not... Not the, it's not the reason I made the work, but it's it's cool to actually hear those thoughts and, and, and have them presented in other spaces and hopefully one day see them in actual cinemas. So this year maybe I'll do that. And uh, and as, as we're talking about the, the film World Walls, which was uh, in our Dubai and the Brach Prize, and you are the winner, the sole winner of the Brach Prize, 
uh, as it changed the past couple of years. And you've been winning a lot of things as, as you go on. And of course, this opens up a lot of new opportunities for you for future work. Uh, with that in mind, is, are you staying within like the same theme of it? Are, you, is, is, are, are your researches taking you differently? Or, or is even the basic opportunity of new locations and, and new funding opening up a different direction to, to what you've been working on? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at most artists' work, they're usually just asking one question over and over and over again. And I think like... Like psychos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like people just banging their heads against the wall. But um, I think for sure I will continue to do that because I think that's a genuine preoccupation. You know, those questions are still there. They're still very alive and they're still very much kind of like many spaces through which to filter and ask them through. So I think, yeah, exactly, making it more, um, spreading it, thinking about how the research can go and where it can go is for sure interesting. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, but, of course, it doesn't mean, again, as each work happens, another thing emerges that you want to take out. I think after the whole um, Saidnaya investigation, it, I need to now just kind of, like, do something else to then come back to those questions because it's been such an intense um, period of time uh, working on that and it was an intense set of interviews that I did in 2016 through which uh, I was compelled to, to tell the, the stories um, I told and I think now in order to make sharper statements later and to kind of like really feel that, to build on it I feel that I need to institute a kind of like small break so I next year want to actually work on something else uh, while those works are still circulating and, and uh, moving ar around and on tour and everything. I, I want to try and sort of um, say, uh, I want to try and focus on another aspect of, of some of the work and stories that I've been telling in previous things which have to do more with the, uh, the taqiyya side of the work. Sorry, the what? The taqiyya, the right to lie, the work I was doing on uh, taqiyya. Yeah. And are these in any specific countries or not? We don't know yet. Uh, mostly here, yeah. Here and, uh, yeah, yeah, this region. Um, for the time being, we're here, yeah. Um, so as, a, as an installation sound experimental uh, artist, you're with a couple of galleries, right? Yeah. Yeah, I am, yes. <laughs> Ah, the, I'm with Maur Charpentier in Paris and Maureen Paley in London. And next year I'll uh, work with uh, Andres first Emla, yeah. To be fair, though, the work that you do isn't the, mo isn't the easiest to sell. So galleries don't necessarily have uh, lots and lots and lots of artists like yourself versus doing work in museums and, and residencies and biennales and, and, such, and, and stuff like that. So how do, at least from your point of view, to other artists who are getting into that field. Is there a certain time when one should be with a gallery, one shouldn't be with a gallery? Does the gallery affect your work? Do, they, do, they, do you need to create things that are more sale-friendly versus museum-friendly? How, how do the politics of, of you as an artist go in that area? Uh, well, I for sure yeah, have to create different kinds of works, um, but those aren't necessarily the works that do best commercially, you know? What you imagine, what I imagine as sort of having commercial success, 
sometimes has none and something I imagine I'm, doesn't, won't have commercial success has a lot. So I think it's about also understanding and, and understanding. I think if it speaks to people, I, I, what I like about people collecting my work is that it just means it's a certain kind of emotional investment in a piece. You know, It's about someone saying, this is kind of like, I want this. I want this near me and in my house. And I think it, it, it kind of like means something to me because some of those are very kind of like small moments in kind of, like, you know, and, and uh, they're a shout across the shouting valley or uh, a gunshot in wherever it is, in Minneapolis. And I think there's something interesting about um, the ways in which the stories I'm telling also intersect with people's lives and how they then relate to them. And I think there's something quite if I say so myself, relatable about the works. It might not be commercial mm-hmm. as such, but often they're telling stories that I think a lot of people can understand. Um, and we do have now a much more broad range of collectors who are not just kind of like focusing on names and art historical sort of like canon. And I think that's meant that people have been open to collecting my work, yeah. And I guess to, to round up your fabulous career you're also I would just like to say also something on the politics of that I think people get it messed up a lot right they think that working in a museum is kind of like good and working for a gallery is kind of like bad there's this kind of like implicit understanding and I think we have to understand the way that museums function now fundamentally to understand that those same people who are collecting your work are the patrons of these museums, are the way that those museums function and operate. And I think there is no longer this divide between public and private. However, there is still a necessity for artists sometimes to be um, responding to other kinds of audiences and forums in which they present the work. So just as I sometimes present as an investigator in court or for Amnesty International, and those you know, that's dealing with a certain audience and sometimes I'm in a museum that's dealing with a certain audience, sometimes I'm in a gallery and that's another kind of audience. So I think it's I think it's good for artists to speak across audiences and to imagine multiple audiences for work and to think the audience in the work. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I mean that's, that's, that's interesting and challenging rather than how many people see it as compromising, right? Okay. I think compromises are good. I I totally agree with you. I am very pro-gallery and pro-people developing the art. Otherwise, art wouldn't really go if if there was no audience for it. But which leads us actually in the end to your to your uh, to what you did this year, which was a curatorial interaction in New York. So now you're a curator as well. No, I'm definitely not a curator. I don't aspire to be a curator. I was working with a fantastic curator. It's a co-curation, right? So. Um, it's somebody, it's Ruba Khatrib, who is a fantastic and hugely successful curator. So she's the one who invited me to work with her. She made you do it. On the show, yeah. She made me do it. And she's, um, yeah, so I mean, I guess like the curatorial stuff, I would, I, I just sort of like, I think it, she still took the reins on that. And, um, what was amazing about the invitation is that you just I learned so much in that process, you know. I heard some of the things that I used to say to curators <laughs> are to say to me. And in that hearing, in that reflection of sound back, I thought, that's so dumb. 
And so seeing the way that, you know, artists sometimes, you know, and, and this wasn't necessarily true of, of the artists that were showing there because I think they were all kind of like super professional and really um, amazing and the works are just fantastic. But I think what's interesting is, you know, as a curator, you have to have a broad understanding of what an artwork is and could be. And you have to make affiliations with, with much more works than me as an artist does. Right? I can go through my career and like the work of seven artists. That's max, you know, five, it could even be five, right? So it's interesting to be asked to put it on a show because you then really have to sort of see yourself through other artworks. And that's what curators do, right? They are putting a piece of themselves in every choice. And I think, again, coming back to a kind of investment in a work like a collector does or like a, you know, I think that has a, has a real power and has a real place. And I finally kind of like got it. Something clicked in my head. So thank you, Ruba. Shouts to Ruba Khatrib. Well, well, as long as you're learning and developing, that's good for everybody. And the show, 74 million, million, million tons, is on at the Sculpture Center in Long Island. And this is on until the 30th of July, 2018. Yes. Um, Long Island City, New York. Long Island City, New York. Next to PS1. And what about your other shows? What are still on show right now? Uh, on show now is... Um, I just had this whole time there were no landmines in Basel, so it's on for the rest of the week in the statement section. That's it. Preparing for a busy uh, fall in which um, there will be uh, a load of works in the Chisholm and the Tate Tanks. And, and you can always get clips and read more about your work and, and hear samples on your website, correct? Yes, that's correct. My website is lawrenceabohamdan.com. L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E-A-B-U-H-A-M-D-A-N.com. Thank you very much. Um, is there anything you want to say to the audiences or to me or to the world before we wrap this up? To the world? <laughs> well, you know, I get, we get audiences in different areas yeah, of the world. That's good. That's cool. Um, no, nothing. Thank you. If you like the work, thanks. Keep coming. That's cool. If you don't, who cares? Bye. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again, Lawrence, for joining us. And thank you, thank you all for listening. Remember to listen, download, rate us, uh, Tea with Culture, on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and a few other ones. Thank you very much, and sweet tea soon. <laughs>